The epistle reading for today is on page 1196 of your pew Bible, Hebrews 12, 3 through 17. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, quote, root of bitterness, unquote, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he d desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear me? This thing working? Great. Just spilled coffee on it, so that was a you know a little up in the air, but good. Good morning. Um, I don't I don't know if um, any of you have either ran a marathon before or supported somebody who ran a marathon or are just for some reason um, up to date on all of the marathon lingo. But if you have, or you are, you might have heard mention of the wall. The wall in a marathon isn't, you know, an actual wall, but it's kind of a bodily, physical, and mental barrier that smacks runners in the face around the 20-mile mark of a marathon. Marathon's 26.2 miles, and around 18, 19, 20, 21 miles, something called the wall, which is, you know, a normal experience of a marathoner. Sometimes I've heard runners say, you know, they've, they they walled or they walled out. It's a very common, common thing. 
And this is the point in a marathon where runners uh, glycogen, uh, the, 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 um, the energy storage in their muscles is running on empty and the body is screaming at them and their muscles are, 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 are yelling at them to stop and um, the body just kind of starts to shut down. I kind of compare spectators at the 20-mile mark of a marathon to those people who, you know, when they go watch, um, like, car races at racetracks, you know, go around that, that curve that's really tight where you just know there's going to be a crash, right? Because there's a lot of crazy stuff that you can see at the 20-mile mark of a marathon because people's bodies just start shutting down, right? And, you know, bodies can do weird things when they start shutting down, um, I haven't ran a marathon before, uh, but I have, you know, I, I ran a lot of miles in high school and college, and so I, I ran close to that and training several times in, in uh, high school and college. And, um, you know, not to, I'm not going to gross you out or get into too many details, but I will say that I got um, really good at telling which leaves were, you know, better for toilet paper when I was, when I was running, you know, these long runs, because your body just, it, it just starts to shut down, it starts to find different ways to tell you, stop, don't keep going, right? If Ezekiel can use poop as an illustration, then so can I, okay? Um, the, the more you run, the longer you run, the, the longer you're, you're pushing your body your body eventually is going to tell you to, to stop, slow down, don't keep going. And that's kind of where these Hebrews are at. They've hit the wall. In, in many different ways, their, their, their spiritual selves are telling them, man, I, I've been through too much. I can't keep going. I've hit the wall. Last week, we, we talked about what faith was. Um, we, we talked, or... We've been talking about what faith was. That was Hebrews 11. What's faith? And then look at all these clouds, you know, look at this big cloud of witnesses that are, that are pointing to this faith, that, that lived lives of faithful endurance. And last week, Mike talked about how the author of Hebrews used that to call them to run with endurance, the race that is set before us. It's a triumphant call to get up, just keep going, keep going. But the author of Hebrews, he's... Not just like he, he, he's not distant from that. He's not emotionally distant from these people. He knows the struggles they've gone through. He, this, is a, this is a pastoral letter that he's writing. He calls it an exhortation, encouragement to keep going. And so he says, I know where you're at. I know, you know, I just told you to run with endurance the race that is set before you, but I know that you've been doing that and you're tired and you're beat up and your body's telling you to stop. There's no more glycogen in their spiritual muscles to keep going. They've had their possessions plundered. They've suffered. They've gone through a lot. It feels like they've walled out. They've hit the wall. So they want to quit. That could mean, you know, they were going back to this Jewish priesthood system, or it could mean they were giving into sin, or they were just tempted to live in unbelief. Man, this is just, it's too hard for me right now. I can't do it. None of this feels like it's working just want to drop out and give up. Of course, you know, we aren't in these people's exact same situation, but most of us probably know what that feels like at least, right? I mean, we just went through a couple years of COVID. We're still kind of in it, right? Um, most of us have had different 
relationships or we, we struggle with juggling school and work and family and different responsibilities, money problems, or there could be you know, physical or mental illnesses that we struggle with, not to mention you know, the big you know, death and tragedy and those kind of things that can knock us down in life and make you feel like you've walled out. You were running the race and you're miles down the road and now your, your, your legs, spiritually or mentally or emotionally, are just, they're just screaming at you to stop. We get tired from suffering and we're prone to draw back from the race of faith into sin and unbelief. And so the first, in, in the first two verses, the writer's saying, this is what this faith is all about. Let's do it. Live it. Get up and get going. Right? It's kind of triumphant. But the author has a pastoral heart for these people. He knows they're hurt and they're struggling. He doesn't want to just give them some, you know, not that that's what the first two verses were, but he, just want, he doesn't want to just say, hoorah, get up, get going. You know, give a little motivational speech and then duck out, right? He, he wants to draw back and answer the questions of, okay, I, I, I see you're struggling. So let me tell you why you should keep going and let me tell you how you should keep going. So why should you endure in this race of faith and how do you do it? How do you run it? So let's look at his answer to why you should keep running first. He really gives, gives two answers and here's the first. Um, this is in verse 3 if you want to look with me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That word in, in the Greek literally is fainting in your souls. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So part of his answer to their weariness and their, the fainting in their souls is to consider. Consider it. Consider the sufferings that Jesus endured faithfully. And, and I think he actually means this. Actually, like, bring it to mind and think about it. We're in the season of Lent right now, right? Um, and and I, I think this is a perfect time to do this. I can't think of a more fitting, you know, thing to do during Lent than, than to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Um, consider how Jesus, the Son of Man, was scourged with a whip that historians tell us had pieces of glass or, or metal on the ends in order to tear muscle fiber and rip skin off. Consider how Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, spent the night in jail. Consider how Jesus, the king of the world, was given a crown of thorns to wear while soldiers spit on him and gambled for his clothes. Consider Jesus, God the Son, and how he carried a hundred-pound crossbeam all the way to Golgotha. Consider how Jesus, our Savior, hung on a cross for six hours, slowly bleeding out and choking to death for our salvation. Why? Why does he tell us to do that? Why does he tell us to bring that to mind. He's not minimizing our suffering. He's not saying, oh, look at Jesus. He suffered way more than you guys. Get it together, right? It's not a shaming thing. He's saying, consider all that Jesus went through and endured. He never dropped out of the race. And Jesus saved you and is with you by the power of the Spirit so that you can do it too. Uh, when I was running cross country and track in high school, probably the most inspiring book I ever read um, about running, uh, it was called The Perfect Mile. It was about three people that were trying to break the four-minute mile, run under four minutes in the mile for the first time. There was an American, there was an Australian, and there was an Englishman. 
And now, you know, nobody had done this before, right? And it seemed like such an insurmountable goal that there were, you know, a lot of people who thought that it could never be done. Or that if you do it, there were actually some scientists, or maybe pseudoscientists, I don't know, um, that said that if someone were to do this, if they were to put their body through running a four-minute mile, that they would actually drop dead at the finish line. It's impossible. It'll kill you. Or maybe even if, maybe you can do it, but you need perfect conditions, which may never happen, or it's too hard. Until one day it happened. One of them did it. The Englishman. One day in 1954, Roger Bannister took to a track on a cold, windy day in England. Um, I actually semi-legally, I think, jogged on the track where this happened. And he ran a three-minute, 59-second, 0.4-mile. But the crazy thing is, the thing that everybody said, it was impossible, you can't do it, or you'll die. They, they said this for so long, and then once Roger Bannister did it, it was done by everybody. Every year after that, more and more people ran sub-four-minute miles. The record today is almost 20 seconds under that, which is a lot. I, I actually saw a news article, I think, um, yesterday. I don't know how recently this happened, but there was an American 17-year-old uh, high schooler that ran a 356, which is crazy. But this, th there's actually um, a name given to what happened. It's called the Roger Bannister Phenomenon that there's something to not knowing the possibility of something that holds us back. And, and for something that requires so much suffering that we need someone to, we, we, need some, we just need somebody to do it. We need somebody to break the seal and show us that it's possible. And then once people see that it's possible, a lot of people can do it. And that's kind of why the, the author of Hebrews is telling us to consider Jesus' faithful endurance. He did it. If you will, Jesus is kind of, he's, he's the Roger Bannister of our endurance. He was faithful, and by the Holy Spirit, he's with you, and he's a living witness to the possibility of faithful endurance. You have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus, our older brother in the Lord, did exactly that, and he endured it's possible. You've got more in the tank to give. Even if you don't feel like it, you don't feel like it, and yet you have more because look at Jesus. You can keep going. So that, that's the first answer of why we endure. Consider, consider Jesus. He'll show you why we endure. Let's look to the second. This is verse 5. I'm going to go 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly. This is, Prover this is from Proverbs 3. That he's quoting. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to him, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So his second answer to the question of why do you endure? Remember. Remember. Remember that in your hardship, in your weariness, in your feeling like you just hit the wall, you are sons. 
You are sons. Remember your sonship. God is calling you sons. He's treating you as sons. So count that pain, that that suffering, that wall you feel like, count that as discipline. So to understand this and what it means, we have to dive into what, what discipline means. Because Today, we use that in a couple different ways, right? We could say, you know, when, when we say we discipline a child, that usually means, you know, some sort of correction. Child's going the wrong way, we have to correct them and something, you know, go to your room, right? There's negative and, and positive punishments. Um, when we talk about self-discipline, or, or even kind of like learning a discipline is in the same area, we mean kind of restricting our desires and working hard or consistently subjecting ourselves to something, you know, rigorous, um, so that we can be proficient at something, learn something, learn a skill. So we have this word discipline here um, in the passage, and it's also um, kind of informed by, if you look in verse 11, um, the word for training there is actually gymnazo, um, or gymnazo. Uh, It's the word that we get the word for gymnasium from, right? When we go to a gym, we're talking about training our bodies, but back in Greek culture, this wasn't just for, you know, a, a, gym, a gymnasium wasn't just for training your bodies, it was also for training your, your minds and your souls. Um, it, was, it was a place for males to go to and train um, not only their bodies, but their entire selves to be able to fit into the Greek culture. They learned history and culture and artistry. And, and just as an aside, you know, notice that I, I did say males, right? Right? This was exclusively for males. And this passage also keeps saying sons, right? So what about, what about women? The reason that the New Testament so often uses sons and calls us all sons is not because it's sexist. In fact, it's actually the exact opposite. When Paul calls us sons and he introduces adoption language, you know, some of the uh, language that Chris used from, from Romans 8 uh, calls, us, calls us sons, Um, It's also in Galatians. He does that because he was arguing that, okay, you have an inheritance in the Lord. And he was writing to a context that the only people that get the full inheritance rights are sons, right? So by including female believers in sons, he's actually making them equal with males before God. When the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing sonship here, it's because there were no women allowed in the gymnasium, right? They didn't have the same rights to education and training and being brought up in culture as the males did. So the writer of Hebrews here is calling both sons and daughters of God sons in order to say, you have the same rights and training up in the Lord. All right, aside over. So training here means something holistic, And so does the word discipline. It's mostly used for the bringing up and the training of children. So I'd argue that the word here includes both ideas that we have when we use discipline. The correction that comes when we're going the wrong way and the instruction in bringing us up in something, right? There's both senses here. And I want to be super careful with with my wording um, because this is where wording and clarity are are, are very important um, because I don't want to hurt anybody. Um, There are many people in here who have suffered um, greatly, more greatly than I have, and and I I don't want to use this to to wound um, anybody. This this text is saying for this group of Hebrews, God has brought about situations and trials in which they have suffered in order to correct them from sin. 
This text does mean that one possible reason for suffering is to correct and reprove from going the wrong way, from sin. This text does not mean that every instance of suffering is due to sins that have been committed or going the wrong way. There, there are many Christians who have struggled with that line of thinking. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, struggling here. Like, is, it, is there a cause in what I've done or where I'm going? And, and, and I don't think that that's really what God wants us to do. I don't think he wants us to you know, try to get behind his will and, and, and understand what's, what's the exact, let's pinpoint the exact reason that God has for us here. There are many reasons that scripture actually gives for the meaning of suffering. It's not just this one, but they're all subsumed under, they're all pointing to your good. God works everything, Romans 8 says, for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's what verse 10 here is saying, right? And it's very interesting here. We have the language about God as father, and I think that many times we don't think about, you know, how we cor- correlate God's fatherhood to our own experience of fathers, earthly fathers. Some of us had good fathers that point us to the kind of father that God is. Some of us didn't. Some of us had absent or neglectful or angry or even abusive fathers. Notice he says, they did what seems, seemed best to them. Right? They're, he could have even said, like, you know, they did what... They thought was good for us. Doesn't say that. Seems like the author of Hebrews here is really trying to. Um, he's really trying to set these two apart. That God is a good, good father. God is a good father. He is not neglectful. He is not absent. He is not angry. Bad discipline of children is primarily retributive. Um, so my wife, Tara, was a criminology major in college. I was kind of talking to her about the different types of punishment, the different types of criminal punishment. There's, you know, restorative punishment and rehabilitative punishment, and there's punishment as deterrent. But there's also, you know, there's, there's a sense of retribution in some of our, you know, legal justice criminal system. You, you need to suffer for what you did. There's a sense of societal wrath being given at the wrong done. That's not the correction of a good father. God's discipleship, God's discipline is not retributive punishment to make you feel bad, but correction to lead you into goodness. God's discipline is not angry. Where it says God chastises every son whom he receives, the word receives there actually has an element of welcome, invitation, right? That's why a lot of translations actually translate that into delights in. God chastises as he disciplines those that he delights in. God the Father delights in you. He is not emotionally absent from you. He is not angry at you. He delights in you. Thomas Brooks, um, an early Puritan, said, Saints, says God, think not that I hate you because I chide you. He that escapes reprimand may suspect his adoption. Not you. A gracious soul may look through the darkest cloud and see a God smiling on him. You are not being ignored as an illegitimate child or an outsider who's being punished. You are being disciplined as a child who belongs to a good, loving father who delights in you. 
In this way, sanctification is leaning in to who you are as a son, growing in your faith, growing in your holiness, killing your sin. That's, that's leaning into who you already are as a son. It's embracing your belonging in the Lord and the loving correction that comes with it. Our tendency is for, to forget that, right? I need, I need to be reminded of that. And that's why Hebrews is saying, have you forgotten that God calls you sons? God calls you his children, sons and daughters, and God wants you to grow up and look like him. And that good for you is holiness. This discipline is bringing the peace of righteousness, as it says in our passage. Pain forces us to change, and God wants us to grow in that. Um, C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The author of Hebrews is saying, even though you feel like giving up on this race because you're hurting, the pain is actually meant for you to keep moving. That's the only way to grow in endurance is by enduring. The only way you get better at running is by running, right? So those are the answers that the author gives to why keep running. And now let's look at how to keep running. How to... How do we actually do this? What does it actually mean to run the race? Uh, look with me at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. I, I love that imagery, right? It's the, it's the imagery of hitting the wall. Your knees are weak. Your, your arms are... You can't keep going. You don't think you can keep going, but... You need to. This is mile 20 imagery. It sounds so simple. You know, make straight paths for your feet. Keep going forward. I think our biggest wall here to actually getting this, our biggest enemy of actually doing what this says is how feelings-based we are. We live in a very feelings-based culture, right? If I don't feel like it, it's very hard to do it. I'm not going to do it. There's no reason to do it, right? There's a lot of philosophic you know, worldview stuff behind that that we won't get into, but if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. It's incredibly hard for us to act without the feeling to act. And when hands droop and knees buckle, our last feeling is to you know, make straight our paths and keep going. Pain limits our ability to feel like we should keep going. And I want to be clear because sometimes I, I think we can look at others suffering or suffering out in the world. You know, we just prayed for Ukraine. And, and, and we can discount our own daily troubles, our, our ordinary struggle, our ordinary pain. But, you know, in James, when it's talking about persevering through suffering and, and counting it joy to suffer, he says, when you face trials of various kinds... What does that include? All the trials, all the struggles, work frustrations, cancellations, and all the, all the frustrations that we've had with COVID. Many of us have, like I said before, difficult relationships, juggling all the things that we have to juggle in life, money problems, illness, we're beat down, we're walled. The cumulative effect of all those things is that we have drooping hands and weak knees sometimes. There's no, 
It's not always one big thing. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times it's just, man, like life is, it's tough. It's hard. We live in a broken world and sometimes it's just hard. We don't feel like it. We can say, I, I don't feel anything. And especially, you know, thinking spiritually here, like when we're beat down like that, you know, we can say, I, I don't feel the presence of God in prayer. I don't feel the light turn on when I read the word. I don't feel fellowship when I go to church. Man, I used to, I used to turn on the worship music in the car on the way to work or whatever and feel like God was sitting right next to me and, you know, worship. I don't feel like that anymore. Now I just feel nothing. There's some early, early Christian um, monastics that called this acedia. It's a Greek word. And it, and it basically just means spiritual numbness, spiritual apathy, lack of any sense of, of care or feeling for the things of God. Droopy hands, weak knees. Christian, can I just say that this is, that's an, it makes sense as a part of living in a broken world. We're not always going to feel it. We're embodied creatures living in this fallen world and the feelings aren't always going to be there. C.S. Lewis, again, um, but in Screwtape Letters, you know, Screwtape Letters is about a veteran demon writing to a rookie demon on how to best turn his, you know, the Christian um, that he's assigned to away from the Lord, get him to drop out of the race of faith, right? Um, and one thing that he says to him in there, one thing that, you know, this veteran demon is saying to the rookie demon is, you, you can't let your guy know about the law of undulation, an undulation just means wavy, right? You can't let him know that in the subjective experience of faith, you're not always going to feel close to God. Sometimes you're down here. The next day you could be up here or the next season you could be up here. The next season you're down. The feelings won't always be there. The feelings will undulate. They'll, they'll, they'll go in waves. But if you know that, then you can keep going. You can hold on because you know it's not always going to be like that. You want to let him think that, He's always going to, this is how it is from now on. I, I felt the presence of God when I first became a Christian. And now, man, I'm, I'm never going to feel those same feelings again. When we were talking about uh, Hebrews um, recently, Abram Van Ingen uh, kind of reminded me about one of our culture's greatest works of art that really speaks to this, Frozen 2. Um, my kids like watching Frozen, but only in, you know, eight-minute segments, so I don't think I, I'm not even sure if I've watched the whole thing, to be honest, at this point. But I have heard the song, Do the Next Right Thing. It comes as the character has gone through a lot of suffering and is in a really dark place. You know, Disney gets really deep sometimes. Um, here are some of the lyrics of that song. I've seen dark before, but not like this. This is cold. This is empty. This is numb. The life I knew is over. The lights are out. Hello, darkness, I'm ready to succumb. Again, this is Disney, right? The grief has a gravity. It pulls me down, but a tiny voice whispers in my mind, you are lost, hope is gone, but you must go on and do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It's all I can do. The next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take, but break it down to this next breath. Take this next step. This next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through night, stumbling blindly towards the light, and do the next right thing. 
And with it done, what comes then? When it's clear that everything will never be the same again, then I'll make the choice to hear that voice and do the next right thing. Make straight your paths. Keep going. Do the next right thing. Do the next faithful thing before God. I don't feel the presence of God in prayer. Pray again. I don't feel the light turn on when I read the word. Keep reading. I don't feel anything when I take the Lord's Supper. Grab a bigger piece of bread this time. Right? God will heal you. I can't guarantee when. I can't guarantee what exactly that looks like. But he says it right here that he's going to heal you. Don't give up. It might look ugly, right? It's not always going to look pretty. Don't give up. Look at me at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's actually a reference back to Exodus and the resentment that some of the people had toward the Lord. Verse 16, See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The choice to use Esau there is kind of a, it's an interesting um, choice, but the, the more you think about it in context of the, this passage, the more it makes sense. Um, Genesis, in Genesis 25, it says, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Jacob was kind of painted as the, you know, he was lazy, he was deceitful, he didn't do anything, right? Maybe he made some, cooked up some ramen sometimes. Um, but Esau, he was, he was the hard worker, right? He was the hunter. He was the, he, was the, he was the farmer. He was out in the field. And he was coming in and he was exhausted. He was weary and he was faint-hearted and his hands were droopy and his knees were weak and he'd hit the wall. And so out of that pain, he gave up. He dropped out. He sold his birthright for some stew. And the mention of sexual, sexual immorality there is kind of interesting as well because this isn't something that Scripture has usually attributed to Esau, like he had a weird thing with um, some Hittite wives and stuff, but th that kind of fits the imagery too because um, a lot of times Scripture uses uh, that word for um, sexual immorality as just kind of a, a spiritual adultery, right? God, God, God paints himself, he uses the illustration in Scripture that, that he's our husband and we're his wife and, and we're, when, we, when we leave him, when we drop out of the race, when we're unfaithful, paints that like adultery. It's a momentary pleasure costing eternal reward. This mentions not failing to obtain the grace of God, cutting off bitter resentment, not being sexually immoral, not being unholy. But if you look closely, it's actually not telling you to do any of those things. Of course, it's not saying to do those things, right? But it's not telling, like, it's, the imperative here is not cut off bitter resentment. The imperative here is don't be sexually immoral. The imperative here is don't be unholy. The imperative is see to it. See to it that others are running this race. Look out for each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was martyred in World War II for trying to kill Hitler, understood the need for watching out for each other in Christian community. He wrote um, the book Life Together on how God communicates his sanctifying grace, his growing grace to the Christian, not, not his justifying grace. This isn't a, you know, a priesthood thing where it's mediating God's grace, but God communicates himself to the Christian in the Christian life through the church, the body of Christ. Through others. Here's what he says in that book. 
Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous his isolation. Reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns one another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the loving rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. This author caps off this passage about stay in it, keep going, run the race by saying, you're not, you know, you're not trying to beat everybody else. You're not, try- you're not running alone. You are running with other people. And you need each other in this race. This isn't like, it's almost like, like it's not a, a race, it's more of an ultramarathon, right? Ultramarathons are any race that's longer than 26.2 miles. And really, you know, the goal in ultramarathons, I mean, there's still finish, you know, there's still people that win and lose and stuff like that. But the goal is more just to finish, right? The goal is just to make it to the finish line. And you need other people for that. That's what the author is saying. I know you're struggling against sin, But you're not in this alone. You're not called to do this yourself. God does not intend for you to struggle alone. God does not intend for you to struggle with sin alone. God intends for you to be in a community where you can love each other and see to it that everybody obtains the grace of God, that everybody keeps going. Um, I struggle with this. I'm very, um, I don't know, Autonomous, maybe that's too good of a word for it. Sometimes um, I I hide a lot. Um, my my tendency is to hide. My tendency is to um, curve in on myself, to be in my own head. And so um, I, I meet regularly with an older Christian um, that encourages me and um, tries to keep me moving in the faith. And whenever I'm really struggling and I'm I'm talking to this guy, he's like. When you get in your car to go home today, before you leave, before you put the car in reverse and get out of the parking spot, I want you to text somebody, check in with somebody, right? Um, And so I want to make this super applicable today because this is the imperative of the passage is to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that we're looking out for each other. So, I don't know if you've ever heard this in church before, but if you do have a cell phone, then take it out right now. Um, I I actually want you to take your cell phone out right now. You know, resist the impulse to get on Instagram or check email or whatever. But if you are sitting here and you're like, man, I am am in the thick of it, right? You talk about the undulation, I'm, I'm at the bottom of the wave. I'm, or maybe, you know, either I'm beat up and I've hit the wall or, man, I've, I feel like I'm in the midst of resentment, sexual immorality, unholy, I'm bitter, I'm resentful, right? I want you to text somebody and say, hey, let's catch up this week. That's all I want you to say, all right? Preferably a Christian, maybe even preferably somebody in this church. If you don't have anybody like that, um, then... You can talk to Mike, talk to one of the elders afterward. We'll talk to you, you know, get, um, get you in a community group, get you in a prayer group. 
If, you're, if you don't feel like that, if you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay right now. I'm doing okay right now. Can you text somebody that you think might not be? And can you say, hey, let's catch up this week? Because that's, that's what it's telling you to do here. See to it. Watch out for each other. God did not intend for us to struggle alone. God did not intend for us to run this race alone. God disciplines us, not as outsiders who need to be punished, but as those belonging to him as beloved and delighted in sons and daughters. So we should be encouraged to keep going, keep going in the race of faith with our brothers and sisters, right? Let's pray. Dear God, we are sinners and strugglers. And life can beat us down. But you've given us so much to look at. You've given us so much to consider. You've given us so much to remember. And you tell us that we are not alone. Jesus is with us. We are your sons and daughters. And we are in this race together. And so, God, I pray for anybody in this room um, that's struggling with sin right now. I pray for texts to be sent before we hit communion. I pray for people who, even if they're doing good, tend to run alone. God, I pray that you would help them bring others along. Be with us, Lord. Um, remind us of your love for us and grow us in our, in our childhood. It's in your name we pray. Amen.